Hey, Twin Peaks Unwrapped listeners, this is Ben, and uh, before we get into Community Rewatch Episode 4, I came across information regarding Episode 3, and I found this in the Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, the unofficial visitor's guide to Twin Peaks that came out in 1991. In the last Community Rewatch, we were talking about this scene where Cooper and a caretaker in the cemetery were talking. I think everybody in the panel really liked that scene. And in Behind the Scenes, uh, Harley Payton was interviewed and he said, at the time, it was my favorite thing that I had ever written, but as it is often the case, you're talking about a day player, and it's hard to get people to do that stuff. When the person came in and didn't work out, the scene was cut. There wasn't, there wasn't room in the episode for that scene, or uh, it didn't make sense to have that scene. It just happened that the, the actor didn't work out. So I found that interesting. Oh, Brian, it's me, it's Robin Lively, a.k.a. Lana Budding Milford. Brian, I'm understanding it's your special, special birthday today. You are turning 40. Happy birthday! And you guys, you and Ben, first of all, Ben has told me all about you and what a super cool dude you are. And you guys do Twin Peaks Unwrapped, a podcast that's so cool! Um, I hope you have the best birthday and... um. Let's see, can I do a line for you from Twin Peaks? Just, you know, because it is your special day. How about, um, oh, how about this one when I was at the table where I said, you're one of the judges, you can guarantee it. (laughs) Oh man, that was so much fun. I had the best time on that show. Anyway, I hope you have the most wonderful birthday. So biggest hugs and kisses to you from me. Happy birthday, Brian. Cooper, where do we start? She's had two visions. This is the man I saw in my dream. You saw this man? I had an intuition that my dream and Sarah Palmer's vision were connected. I didn't go with you this morning because I didn't want to influence her. I'm a strong sender. One woman can make you fly like an eagle. Another can give you the strength of a lion. But only one in a cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder and the wisdom that you have known a singular joy. I wrote that for my girlfriend. Harry? So this is Community Rewatch episode four, which is kind of like the veterinarian episode, and we've got a great panel, and uh, let's start off with Aaron. Yeah, so uh, Aaron Cohen here, definitely excited to be here with a, a great group of people, a uh, huge Twin Peaks fan, huge fan of, of Twin Peaks Unwrapped. And right now, I am living in North Carolina, so I've lived in Maryland, UK, uh, all, all, all over the place before that, but based in North Carolina, and happy to be here. Hey everyone, Robin Norris, super huge fan of your podcast. You guys don't know me, I'm friends with Aaron, and he was nice enough to invite me, but thanks for having me on. I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. I'm excited to get into the weeds here. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. Is that we're saying where we're from? I'm from Los Angeles. Awesome, and hello everyone. So Josh Minton, uh, you may know me as JB Minton, it's what I publish under. Um, hello Robin, hello Aaron, hello Ben and Brian, all the Twin Peaks community. Um, if you haven't uh, ever heard our podcast, we're a Red Room podcast, and you probably know Scott Ryan's name, my co-host, and I also just published a book on all of season three called The Skeleton Peak. Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks. Yes, I'm reading it right now, and I love oh, it. Thank you, Robin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and same for me, Josh. I'm also reading it. You're a good man, Aaron. I appreciate that. <laughs> and Josh, what, of course, what's so exciting is it, it's available free. Yes. So, I mean, there's no totally reason why everybody shouldn't just download it right now. Right. Um, where could they get it? TwinPeaksSkeletonKey.com. Super easy. 
And we had you on the show a couple weeks ago, and it was a fantastic show. You did, and it was, and, and it got a ton of downloads. So thank you guys so much. I think like 200 people downloaded the book oh, just because awesome. of your episode. So I'm so cool. uh, eternally grateful. Sometimes you wonder, like, are we, are we making a difference? Can we can we promote this, and can we share the love and stuff? And it's good to hear that people are yeah, do that. That is great. So now here are the unseen players. Hi, this is J.C. Hotchkiss, and I play Adana, secretary and narrator. Hello, this is Andy Bentley. I will be playing the part of our dear Agent Cooper and another Andy and Ben Horn. Chop on cigar. Hi, this is Peter Holland and I'm playing Leland Palmer, James Hurley and Chet. Hi, my name is Gisela Fleischer and I play Madeline Ferguson, Colleen Harley, Emerald and Jade. Hi, this is Rob King from 25 Years Later site, and today I will be playing Gerard and Leo Johnson. Hi, this is Twin Peets. I'll be playing the parts of Sheriff Truman and Deputy Hawk. I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Twin underscore Peets. Hi, I'm Francine the Lucid Dream as Nadine Hurley. I'm Minx Arcana as Shelley Johnson. I'm Schaefer the Dark Lord as Ed Hurley and Sparky. And we are The The Pink Pink Room Burlesque! (laughs) This is episode four. It was written by Robert Angles. You know, he did it, he was a producer. He also co wrote Firewalk with me and directed by Tim Hunter. And so, episode four, what do you guys think about this? This is like, the, this is the uh, veterinarian episode of the llama. I mean, the, you try to think about each episode. This is what it always I think about is the llama episode. I, I think there's just a ton of fun stuff in this episode. I mean, of course, you've got, you've got the whole llama scene. I mean, you also have reference to, uh, to Hawk's girlfriend and it's a great line. You've got some classic invitation to love. You've got just some, some great lines all over the place, great scenes. I think this is just vintage. Season one of Twin Peaks. I mean, I could I could watch this season over and over and over. Totally, and like t- Tim Hunter, who you know he was known for uh, *River's Edge*. I mean, like he's a well-known director. I love this episode. I mean, I love almost all episodes, even the bad ones in season two. <laughs> There's a lot of goofy stuff here. The Lidecker Clinic, the Hawks poem, like Aaron just referenced, mm. you know, and then also like introduction to Hank Jennings, which makes me sad whenever I'm watching Peggy Lipton now. Yeah. yeah, I like seeing so much of her in this episode. It's just like it is classic, and the invitation to love, which I think was supposed to be even more in this episode, I love. One of the first things we get to see is at the Palmer House, and Harry Truman and Andy are getting a sketch from Sarah because of her vision. And it's interesting in the, in in the last episode, I think it was in the Unseen Twin Peaks, where. Where Cooper says, you know, Cooper had this vision and he said, oh, it was Hawk in my vision that was the sketch artist, not Andy. And he mentions to Truman, oh, you should go see Sarah Palmer and yeah. and see because it's connected to my vision. But that was all cut out of the television version. And so it's kind of interesting why when you watch this episode at the beginning, it's like, how did they already get here? Like, why are they at the, at the Palmer house? I don't know if it was clear why they why they were there. This scene has a great moment from uh, from Ray Wise. I think he plays it beautifully where he's kind of. He appears to be just drunk, disoriented, and kind of mocking Sarah. And says, "You know, she's had two visions." <laughs> and just the way he delivers that, I think, is, is pretty awesome. It's amazing. Ray Wise watching him in all the scenes before you find everything out. It's fascinating because it totally works on so many levels. I mean, just those lines were so creepy. I, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Um. So 
this is probably maybe my third or fourth time watching this episode. And when I was watching the scene, like I never noticed this before. And you guys just nailed it too. The way he delivers this line to me, it sounds like he's throwing Sarah Palmer under the bus. He says basically she's has two visions and he walks out and he does seem very cocky. He seems uh-huh. almost kind of drunk on power and he's such a dick because <laughs> if he was if he was a good husband a caring husband he would sit down next to her and explain to Andy and Harry listen she's been having these visions we're concerned we know what they mean but he drops this bomb so casually like she's crazy and he walks off he just disappears and he leaves her in the lurch now she's got to explain what these visions are and not come across crazy. I never noticed this until this watch. It's like almost an admission of his guilt because mm. her vision is of Bob, you know, and so he's trying to throw them off the scent. Right. You know? It's like, oh, two visions. It's so <laughs> slowly like, yeah, you, it almost is like, don't believe my wife, you know, yeah. as they're looking at the drawing of Bob. Right, right. And I never got this until just now watching this scene again. And, you know, uh, Ben and myself were talking about this before going, you know, obviously they weren't planned. We don't know if they were planning Leland to be the killer at this point in time. But looking back, it really works. That yeah. scene really works. Like every one of these community watches, I have a question based to ask. Um, are there any clues that Leland was the killer? And like now we can look back and say, well, yeah, he seems very sarcastic. He, we were talking before again that he runs out of, the, or he gets out of the room. He doesn't, he can't even stay in the same room with right. everybody. That like there is a right, Robin. There's like an admission of guilt. Yeah, it's the first time I've rewatched all any of Twin Peaks that wasn't season three in probably three or four years. Wow, so yeah. you know, this has actually been a joy to go back and uh, immerse myself from the beginning. And what hit me about this episode was how big on expository information it was. So, you know, I'm used to like diving into season three where there is nothing like you're rooting around for some kind of a meaning or, or something. And then from the very beginning, Leland comes in and with that same attitude that Mr. C has in the diner scene mm. in, in part one of, of season three, he basically just lays it out, you know, need, not want. Sarah had two visions, boom. And just like you said, he rolled that grenade in the room. And that one statement sets off this chain of reactions where people are telling information that is crucial to the investigation to laura's murder and and i I wrote a couple of notes down i'll I'll make notes as we go through here but that was definitely one of the first ones so for example you know donna's listening to that and she knows she's been had because it's about the necklace right and so that sets off a whole chain with her and james and then of course you know uh cooper's vision about you know going to to find the one-armed man and all that also kicks off from that as well so with one statement Leland as Bob literally mm-hmm. kicks off this entire chain of events for this episode, and that's in stark contrast to what happens in season three. Yeah, wow. that was really interesting. I yeah. like that. Yeah, we also think like how like later on we'll have uh, Cooper saying, "I'm a strong sender," and you know, like he's like he has his own dreams, and he doesn't kind of want to interfere with what Sarah's sharing. We were saying, "Is Leland a strong sender?" He's got like the spirit inside of him, and like he is he setting off b- vibes as well, and he's got to like right. leave. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how about we share a uh, unseen Twin Peaks? Interior, Ed Hurley's house, day. 
Ed and his assistant, Sparky, a wise and eager beaver, enter and tiptoe into the living room to examine Nadine's rowing machine. The oars are bent like a Z. Watch you don't track any grease, Sparky. They kneel down and look at the machine. How the heck could Nadine bend the thing like that? That's tempered steel, Edsker! Ed glances at the window, picks up the phone. Nadine's still rummaging around out in the garage. Catch an eye, will you, Sparky? Safe as houses, Edsker! Ed dials. After a couple of rings, his call is answered. Shelly? Hi, it's Ed Hurley. I need to talk to Norma. It's kind of important. Interior, Double R Diner. Day. Shelly Johnson has answered Ed's call. As she talks, she watches Invitation to Love on the tube, with the sound turned down. You just missed her, Ed. She's left for Hank's parole hearing. Shoot. Shelly, when she gets back, could you tell her... Sparky sees Nadine approaching. He gives Ed the high sign, takes out a wrench, and moves back to the rowing machine. Nadine Hurley enters, carrying a breakfast tray. Uh, you tell Mrs. Milford uh, not to drive anywhere without an extra set of lug nuts. He hangs up the phone and turns to Nadine. She displays the tray loaded with food, a newspaper, a pot of coffee, and a grease gun. Nadine smiles seductively at Ed. Eggs and bacon and sausage and ham and holy toast and juice and coffee. And a sports section. And a grease gun for working on my rower. Uh, what's the occasion, Nadine? I'm gonna get a good lawyer, Ed. <sighs> There's a damn good patent lawyer in Fairvale. Those drape runners are going to make us a fortune. I enjoy seeing Sparky, who I guess was in, wasn't it one of your previous episodes where he was in another? Right. He was. Yeah. I forgot yes. about that, Robin. Yes, he was. Wow. Yeah. I can't remember what he was but doing, have... but you're right. He's been cut twice now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Sparky. I was reading it and I was like, oh, there's Sparky again. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I remember seeing Sparky. Yeah. Poor guy. I also really love the directions that aren't the dialogue. It's just interesting to see, like, Sparky, a wizened, eager beaver. It just <laughs> makes me laugh. Like, like, I'm going to put that on my business card going forward, by the way. That's a phenomenal <laughs> yeah. title. I thought it was interesting how Ed is, you know, re still reaching out to Norma. You know, she's busy with Hank right now. The issue between Ed and Norma has always been their devotion to other people, mm. right? Their duty. To, to other people. And so I think that this scene really does paint, you know, Ed putting in the work that it takes to make Nadine happy, whatever that means. And then, of course, you know, on the other side, he wants to make Norma happy, but now she's off trying to make Hank happy. So it really does set up the tragedy and, and uh, ultimately the triumph of their relationship in season three, right? Right, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And, and for me, I just, I love the character of Nadine. And like any time she can mention the drape runner she's so excited about, I mean, just, it's, it's fun. To, to see that. I mean, their relationship, it's heartbreaking. I guess I'm rewatching season, well, I'm now I'm into season two, um, and just watching the evolution of that because exactly what you were saying, they, they just, Norma and Ed, just they give, 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 and watching the way he gives to Nadine has always been one of the most heartbreaking things for me to watch. I also really enjoy sidebar when they mention other characters that we never see. So I love, you know, you tell Mrs. Milford not to drive anywhere without <laughs> that extra set of lug nuts. I'm like, oh, I want to see Mrs. Milford now. <laughs> Timberfalls Motel. Day. Room A. Close on a television turn to invitation to love. Fade up. On a legal document that reads, last will and testament. <laughs> 
The document is rolled up and inserted in Emerald's purse. She moves to Chet, who sits demoralized, destroyed. Emerald gives him a motherly kiss on the forehead. Good boy, Chet. God forgive me. Chet, darling, don't be a fool. She pats her purse. Someday soon the towers will be all mine. Doorbell. Chet drags himself to the door, opens it to discover Jade holding flowers. Jade! What's wrong? Hello, sister. Emerald. Don't. Seeing Emerald. What are you doing here? I think it's time we all had a nice talk. Get a little bit more of invitation to love. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they wanted to have it in almost every scene of this episode. Yeah, everybody's watching Invitation to Love. It's the only thing on. <laughs> right, I think uh, Shelly was watching it, and then this scene takes place with uh, Catherine and Ben in the motel. motel. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, speaking of Jade, I mean, this this is the same Jade of a few rides. Jade from season three, right? <laughs> you know, I always thought that. But Jade is the good girl in the Invitation to Love, isn't she? Emerald is the bad girl. Right, yeah. right. Good girl gone bad yes. for season three, right? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I love the Invitation to Love bits, though. They're just, they're fun. And it's it's nice as a running commentary on what's actually happening. I think in that original fade uh, from the, the, the Leland scene, it like fades from them talking about the other half of that necklace to a necklace yes. and invitation to love. And then here we've got, you know, Catherine and, and Ben are, are uh, spinning their, their whole scheme about burning the mill down. And yet in the invitation to love here, we've also got this whole last will and Testament where she's trying to get the towers or whatever that is. So it's, yes. it's an interesting you know, parallel narrative. Definitely. And mm-hmm. that, I think it's all Mark Frost. I mean, Mark Frost was really into Invitation to Love. He directed it and, and shot it all in one day and stuff. So that was, I think that was really his stuff. Yeah, definitely. Great. Timber Falls Motel. Day. Motel Room B. Still no answer from inside. Truman slowly takes out his pistol. Cooper draws his. Andy nervously takes out his gun. He drops it and it discharges. Cooper glares at Andy. Truman picks up the gun and waves Andy to the back. The door is opened by a genial, mild-mannered, one-armed man. Ringing wet from the shower, a towel wrapped around his waist. Uh, sorry, I was in the shower. Sees the weapons. Sir, please move back into the room. Slowly. The one-armed man, now in a bathrobe, sits on the bed studying Andy's sketch. Hawk is on the phone holding a wallet. Wants and warrants on a Philip Michael Gerard. The man hands the sketch back to Truman. No, sir. Never seen that man before. Sorry, but you know what? Kind of looks like somebody, doesn't he? Truman walks over to two suitcases that sit by the bed. Do you mind if we look in these? Help yourself. With a nod from the sheriff, Andy moves to the suitcases. Mr. Gerard, do you have a friend named Bob? Bob? Oh, you mean Bob Lidecker. Sure, Bob's my best friend. I'm on my western swing. I heard about it. I'm in town visiting him in the hospital. Bob's in a coma. There was a Lidecker assaulted three days ago outside of a bar in Lone Town. That's Bob. Any suspects? No. Is your friend Bob a doctor? He's a veterinarian. Just about the best darn veterinarian in these parts. Extremely dedicated. Has his own clinic about eight years now. No, maybe seven. Let's see. 81. Still a computer school. Yeah, I'd say years. In my dream, he was a regular doctor. What's that, mister? 
Hawk hangs up the phone, hands Gerard's wallet to Truman. He's clean. Take a look at his car. Hawk takes the keys and goes out. Cooper looks at Gerard's ID. Your middle name is Michael. Named after my uncle, uh, Uncle Mike. How'd you lose the arm? Car accident. I was out on the road from Memphis to some place selling pharmaceuticals. Pretty good job. Smoky Mountain sales rep. I had benefits. In background, Andy checking Gerard's suitcases. One of them practically explodes open. A pile of work boots and institutional shoes fall out. Well, that's what I'm selling these days. Everybody needs shoes, don't they? They're off the right foot. Those are just samples, son. We mail order all ourselves. A two-day delivery guaranteed. And and we could certainly take care of all your departmental needs if you're interested. The arm you lost. Did it have a tattoo? What is this all about? I'm a shoe salesman. If you won't tell us, we can find out. What did it say? It said... Mom! Exterior motel. Day. As Cooper and Andy get into Truman's cruiser, Hawk discreetly motions Truman over to the dumpster. Hawk kneels down, dips his finger in the spilled coffee, speaks quietly. Car was staked out when I got here. It was Josie Packard. They exchange a look. Truman's puzzled. Not that it means anything, but Ben Horn's car was parked two blocks away. I don't know if it's Tim Hunter's work, but the pacing of this episode is so good. Very but good. it's interesting in the script, we kind of have more of them knocking on the door and and the one armed man answering it and they kinda it's a it's a longer scene. Yeah, I mean I agree with what you just said about Tim Hunter's directing. I mean, he's amazing. And I think all he did was he's just trimming the fat. Yeah. You know, we don't want to see, you know, you knock on the door and enter it. Uh, again, stage directions, I like to see that the one-armed man is described as a genial, mild-mannered huh. one-armed man. I, I don't know why I just never pictured him as that. Mm. Uh, it seems a little more intense to me. I think this is all trimming. It, it seems like they conveyed everything in the actual scene, but it's just a little tighter, which I appreciate. Cooper learns Gerard's Bob is a veterinarian. And Cooper's like, oh, in my dream, he was a regular doctor. And it's like, regular doctor? Well, like, I don't know. It's he just, did not look like a doctor. But it was still bizarre. It was kind of just a bizarre thing from Cooper. Right. Like, oh, he's not, not a veterinarian doctor. I thought he was a regular <laughs> doctor. It's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, get me there was how much credence Cooper put on his dream. Now, just think about the overall narrative of where he ends up. To where he doesn't really put a whole lot of credence on his dream, uh, you know, in season three, at least not yes. at the right times. Right but here, he's full on, buddy. He is he is living through his own dream, and it's just uh, it's quite ironic when you look at the whole the whole story. But it's interesting how Mark Frost then takes that that dream that David Lynch was just being crazy with, and says, "Okay, I'm going to give meaning to this, and it's going to we're going to fill it up through the whole first season." And I guess we kind of go all the way through the whole Laura Palmer case. But it'd be interesting to relook at the dream and say, "Oh yeah, the red drapes are." Jock's cabin and, yeah. and to see all these different references and then we have this whole Bob that is really Bob Lidecker. I mean, I don't know. It's really fascinating how much he got out of the dream. <laughs> he, did. he did. He did a good job. It, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, the comparisons to Lennon and McCartney between Lynch and Frost are, are 100% valid. So, you know, one playing a rhythm with while the other played the melody, like they would not have been able to do it without each other. And right. so to, to your point, like you'll never be able to unwind who did what from where because inspiration is invisible. Right? Mm. It's just so cool. So, so, so cool. Yeah. I'm Can too- we talk about the, the Catherine 
and um, Ben Ben in the in the hotel. A couple times I watched it, and Ben says, "You know, I gotta wash uh, a little Elvis little here." Elvis. And I was like, "Is this? What does this mean?" I googled it, and it said it could have been a euthanism for something. Yes, um, a body part. Of, a body part. Uh, yes. And because at first I'm like, "Is that Elvis? Is there drugs in there? What's he gonna go do? Like, right. what's up?" And then yeah, I guess it's just one of those weird little silly things. I don't know if all of you have read uh, so Brad book reflecting it's it's a pretty fascinating book there's some great interviews in there definitely and one of them is with uh piper laurie she has some some really interesting comments about this scene so she said that uh basically the execs thought that the uh the line saying you know wash a little elvis they, they thought it was too much so david and mark came up with the prop department actually then made a little elvis doll made it eight inches long gave it richard pulled up and he says that he he filmed the scene there and and afterwards, he kind of confirmed everybody in the room and, and acted real naive and said, you know, I don't get it. Why am I carrying this doll? Laurie said that, that, yeah, I mean, that's the story behind it. The execs thought it was too, too telling of a line. And, and they had the prop department then, Lynch and Frost, had to make this little Elvis doll and had Ben hold it. And they said, OK, yeah, if you're talking about a little doll, then it's fine. You can get away with the line. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So that's ori- awesome. originally there was no doll. <laughs> I, mean, I love were, it. They weren't. They, they were clearly talking about <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is great. Uh, right before the scene we were just talking about, I mean, I, I love where in the sheriff's station, Gordon Cole calls and, and Cooper's on the phone just really strongly defending Harry uh, because Gordon Cole's upset about Harry punching Albert. And hmm. Cooper just says, you know, he's going to fight it all the way up to Washington. And just that that huge, strong defense of Harry. I, I mean, I just I love their dynamic, the whole bromance there together. And I mean, it, it, to me, I, I absolutely love season three and and that's the the one thing i just i I wish there'd been some hurry cooper i wish there'd been some way to to fit him in because i I didn't love their relationship and i thought that's just a a great scene that really starts off how how much cooper cares about harry truman i agree it's a great scene and and right after that one we get that a great jacoby scene where you know he he basically reveals some information right so you know telling about as much as he could about laura i would say you know that a she sought medication and cocaine Mm. and he thought he thought it was a positive thing and then he has a quote in there that's kind of knocked me out. He said, my personal investigation, I suspect, will be ongoing for the rest of my life. Wow. Uh, you know, yeah. Laura had secrets, and around those secrets, she built a fortress. Now, if that's not setting people up 25, 27 years ago for what they were going to experience for the rest of their life with wow. Twin Peaks, I don't, I don't know what was, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is a great line. And you see that right from the pilot that he's, you know, following James and Donna and he's trying to get figure out like with the whole necklace and mm-hmm. he's, and he's following uh, Ghost of Laura, <laughs> basically uh, Maddie and stuff that he's constantly trying to figure out. And oh, I even think of Bobby when 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 he's Bobby sitting down and he's like, uh, "Did he make? Did she make you cry and stuff?" Uh-huh. And he's getting trying to get information about who killed Laura Palmer. There is a scene with Donna and Audrey in wow. the bathroom, and I don't know if anybody wants to talk about that, but I also want to make sure Aaron talks about the high school because I'm definitely curious to talk about that. Well, I'll chat about the scene real quick, and then we'll hear about the high school because that is exciting. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes, and I really wish we had gotten to see more of Audrey and Donna together mm. in the series. I feel like they set it up like they were actually going to sort of work together, you know? Yes, and I agree. We go off with Maddie and Donna and James, which is awesome. But this scene, they had a great chemistry in this scene, I thought. They do. They definitely do. And think of how much information is exchanged between these two people in this scene, right? You know, 
Laura Laura was revealed to have been had a wild side. Uh, you know, Audrey tells her that Ronette and she worked together at the perfume counter, uh, and that she was seeing Jacoby as a patient, and that potentially she could have worked at One Eye Jackson. I mean, like all of those things spin up trails that are going to lead for episodes and episodes, right? Um, and then they lie to each other by saying that they're going to promise to keep what they, they find between them, right. uh, which was which is really interesting. Uh, one final thing on this, I, I really like that uh, Audrey says that she wants m- mystery and international intrigue. Uh, <laughs> and she, of course, she's thinking about Cooper, and we know that Cooper's destined for mystery and interdimensional intrigue. Ah. So it's, uh-huh. you know, his fate is so much more than what she's she's ascribed to him. That's cool. I love it. And, you know, you talk about Donna and Audrey. I agree. There seemed to be this idea that they were going to work together. And they did every once in a while. But it wasn't – you had to wait all the way to episode 25 where where Donna is unsure. She's wondering what's going on between Ben Horn and her mother, Eileen. Mm-hmm. And Audrey takes Donna to her hidden uh, wall there. And they open it up and they're here, they see the conversation between Eileen and and Ben. And right. then you kind of get that again. And they kind of connect it with the whole that they really are half sisters, too. Yes. Which yes. it is too bad that we didn't get more of that through the whole series. Agreed. You mentioned the high school. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine, Mary Hutter, was, was gracious enough to, to take me inside the high school there and, and show me around. I mean, it, it is surreal. I mean, the inside looks just like how it did almost 30 years ago. And it, of course, now I guess it's only a, a matter of time, maybe even just weeks at the point this podcast errors that they'll be uh, demolished and, and no more. So oh. it's uh, definitely uh, pretty pretty surreal and amazing just to, be able to walk through there and look around and see those iconic lines and the wallpaper on, on the walls there. So it's, I, I did that too uh, a few months ago where you stand in that homeroom, right, where they, they had, you know, Donna and, and James are looking at each other across those desks and you're standing in that room going, there's no way they filmed that in here. But it's true. I mean, you're, you're right there. It's really cool. Yeah, and, and I gave it a shot dancing away from the locker too. Uh, I failed pretty miserably, but it was all in good fun. And maybe someday someone will find that guy that – I mean, that's that's an iconic team there in the pilot. Yeah, the dancing yes. guy, the dancing student there. I did see that video, Aaron. It was yeah, pretty great, good, though. Yeah, that was great, Aaron. Yeah, it was great. Uh, when they had the Twin Peaks festivals, they've always used to meet in the high school, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, we met in the high school. Yeah, right. Yeah, we were in there. I think a lot of fans are going to miss having that as a place to kind of meet up. Yeah. It's very sad. Interior Ben Horn's office. Day. Ben Horn is on the telephone looking at a globe. Jerry? Jer, slow down. I know you're in Iceland, but where are you in Iceland? How do you spell that? Two Ks, one F, one V? Locates it on the globe. Yeah, I see it, Jerry. Are you drunk? What's all that noise? You're in the sauna now, or... I see. No, I don't need to talk to anyone else. Hello, yes. Kvaf Sajir to you too, sir. Okay, put my brother back on, would you? A joke. Sure. Go ahead. The Icelander tells Ben a joke. Hogdi Pan Flachterman. <laughs> That's hilarious. Put, put Jerry back on now, please. Jerry is back on. Bottom line, Jerry. Ghostwood Estates, are these tundra tycoons in or out? Very encouraging. That and the quarter will buy me a piece of ice on a stick. You're flying in when? Tonight? That's outstanding. How many? Fifteen? Do they all need separate rooms? The intercom buzzes and we hear a secretary's voice. Mr. Horn, we've got a situation. 
Ben's alarmed. Jerry? Jerry, I've got to go. Get those high rolling snowballs on the plane. I'll see you here in the morning. He hangs up and heads directly for the door. Interior, Great Northern Dining Room, day. In the bar area, Leland Palmer is dancing what looks to be a cross between the Lindy and the Tennessee Waltz with his secretary, a middle-aged gal in a suit. The secretary looks to Ben hoping for something just short of gunplay to rescue her. On the other hand, she's a hell of a dancer. Overall, they look good. Dance with me. Dance with me. Leland, Leland. Leland goes into a dance solo towards Ben, hands him a framed picture. Ben looks at it. A snapshot photo of Laura and Audrey. This was on your desk. Our daughters. Together. Ben pushes his way in between Leland and the secretary. Mind if I cut in? Once in, Ben moves the secretary away from Leland. Ben lets her out of the room, goes back to Leland, and grabs him firmly by the shoulders. Leland. Leland. You gave me that picture, remember? Calm down. Stop it. She loved dancing. She loved to dance. She'd stand on my shoes. I taught her. Come and dance with me. She was a good little dancer. <laughs> ben takes him into an embrace, pats him on the back. Yeah, so, so I love hearing any more of uh, of Ben Horn. The scene with him on the phone, it reminds me of some of his calls in, in season three where he says, you know, Jury's where? What's going on? <laughs> just I, I love hearing him just go on and on. And I was like, why is Leland always dancing? I mean, is he just crazy? He's mm. just losing it. And this this dialogue kind of explains that he used to dance with his daughter when she was younger. It's, it was a father daughter bond through their dancing. And right. And maybe maybe it's too much on, on the nose. Maybe it's kind of nice to have it be just absurd and not yeah. be a reason. But I kind of like the dialogue for the fact that he used to dance with his daughter. I love yeah. that too. I mean, it's fascinating to read it. And I I think that, you know, it is a little on the nose. I don't miss it. Like, I love it every time Leland dance, I, dances. I think it's so heartbreaking the way that he does it and the way they film it. it it's very interesting to see, though, that it was for such a literal reason. And I think I like that we never say it because it's very Lynchian, even though he didn't direct this episode, to just see the pain of him and you kind of intuitively know it's because he used to dance with Laura. I mean, I feel like he mm. says it a couple times throughout the season, but it's way more subtle. Yeah, right. I really like the idea that when Bob is invading a host, that the things that the host loves to do most becomes a point of torture for them. Hmm. And so, you know, this this idea that Leland had this connection with Laura, that was the sweetest thing. You know, he probably sang show tunes to her. He probably danced with her, all of those things. And, and now when he reenacts those, that's a form of torture. And I compare it almost to like how they offer Mr. C coffee. And, you know, it's almost painful. You know, yeah. I don't want a coffee, you know what I mean? But <laughs> Cooper loves coffee so much. So now it's a, now it's a painful thing. Exterior, James Hurley's home, day. A house trailer in the middle of a lonely lot with a couple of aluminum lean-tos off the house. The shades on the window are drawn. James is working on his Harley under a lean-to. James looks up as a car drives down the driveway to the house. Colleen Hurley exits the car laughing, carrying a small suitcase. She's 40, gave James his good looks. Hers are on the way out. She waves goodbye to the unidentified middle-aged gent behind the wheel, and the car drives off. There he is. The fair-haired boy. Where have you been, my fair-haired boy? I was in school. It's a school day. 
takes out a flask. God bless the public indoctrination system. Keeps the kids off the streets. Streets off the street cars and street sweepers. Takes a drink. Where'd you go this time? Taught a kid in prison once. This was Ohio. All he wanted out of life was a job as a San Francisco street sweeper. Ma, you've been gone four days. Kiddo, here's how it is. When the muse cries out, you're helpless to resist. A poem, she said, four days worth. Yes, I replied. Trying to hide his feelings. Are you okay? Myself, I've been better. The poem's pretty good. Takes out a legal pad from the messy suitcase. I learned early on. Write it down. Escape the humdrum hand that life has dealt you. Play with marked cards. Puts on glasses. Reads. Poet Lariat. Rope, rope. Bulldog down. Rodeo town. The last of the Sabine women. I don't want to hear this right now. Sun goes down. Rodeo town. Lariat ropes. Stop. She takes off her glasses, looks at him. Jimmy, are we being rude? James picks up the flask, pours the remainder in the dirt. Okay, sonny boy, if it makes you feel better. You don't know anything. I know girl trouble when I see it. Some little log town sirens cut you up. I recognize the wound patterns. Yeah, you sure can spot it, Ma. Am I right? An awful bitter pause. Her name was Laura. Lash yourself to the mast, Odysseus. Lifts her drink. Eat the lotus. Forget her. Sail on. She strokes his face compassionate. The danger for you, my darling boys, you'll never know whether she's an angel or a harpy sent from hell to rend your heart, because believe me, she'll be one or the other. James is close to tears. He can't combat this. She was both. Ah, but that's the secret, Jimmy boy. They all are. James is sickened. He lurches out the door. This is actually a critically cut scene. That that statement about Odysseus, given what we know about the Odyssey and the role that it played in season mm. three, I mean, that statement, the danger for you, my darling boys, you'll never know whether she's an angel or a harpy sent from hell to rend your heart. Mm. She'll be one or the other. Like, that. that is... I'm, like, upset that that was cut. (laughs) That's a good line. Yeah, that's fascinating. This scene is fascinating. And I I agree with you. Like, that Odysseus line totally stands out. Also, do we... Was she a writer? Do we know... When when James went to see the the Haywards for dinner, she's, oh, yeah, she's away, but she writes for the paper from time to time. Okay, so she writes for the paper. The way her dialogue is written here is so writerly. (laughs) I know that's not a word, but it doesn't sound like someone who would speak did an interesting job of writing for her. As an actor, I would find it maybe hard to make it believable. In the actual television version, there's mention of his mom coming back. I can't remember if it's the same episode or episode future that uh, James goes to see Donna and and says, oh, my mom came back and she was drunk and blah, blah, blah. This actually was filmed twice. It was filmed in in this in this for this episode. It did, it was thrown out, and then in the second season, they they re, I think they filmed it again, and I think they would say, "Oh, a week, a week. You've been gone for a week or two because now it's been season mm-hmm. two. And both times, for whatever reason, I, they had to cut it twice. Very interesting because it, it's. I love the idea of it, but 
like I said, I find it, I think I would cringe if I was watching it. Like, kiddo, here's how it is. When the muse cries out, we're helpless to resist. I, it's just a lot. Yeah, and I think I can, I can see why it was cut there. I think something interesting, though, I mean, in the script, it's, her, her name is Colleen Hurley, and then Secret History of Twin Peaks, Mark Frost makes the decision to call her Susan. And it just, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if he, that was just a conscious attempt there, but it's, it's, it's interesting that she definitely had her name changed from Colleen to Susan in Secret History of Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's really interesting. You do wonder about Mark Frost. Like, I can't, I really can't put my finger on it. Is Mark Frost purposely messing with fans, changing things? Like, you know, you have uh, Pete Martell playing checkers instead of chess, and you have certain things where it's like, mm-hmm. that definitely didn't happen that way. And then other times, you just, did he forget? Like, did he just not, he's like, oh, I'm just going to make it up. It doesn't matter and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to think it's all deliberate choices. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think so too. He's so detail-oriented. There's bound to be little things that are messed up, but I think that he usually makes an effort to go ahead and justify those things. We have a scene in the actual television version where Norma goes to Hank and and is there for parole. I mean, I I just think Peggy Lipton does a a fascinating job there. Uh, I mean, it was just watching it again. I mean, I know it's already been been mentioned here, Robin did mentioned about it i mean it's just such a, a sudden stunning loss i think any scene that she's in she mm. just she lights it up i mean later in this episode she's there in the double r talking with uh with shelly and and just she's I, I always loved her character and i think this is a great scene for her absolutely and you know when she passed for i just really took it hard i was just yeah. crying. Uh. you know i I, you know, anyone who passes from this show, I mean, this show is just such a big part of all of our lives. And, yeah. And I, I bought her autobiography and I read it. Oh. I don't know if you've read it, but I just was, I don't know. I was just like, I want to read more about her. It was very interesting. You know, she's had two iconic roles in her life, you know, Mod Squad, and then she took this huge break and then coming back to Twin Peaks. And in her book, she says that Norma was the character that she's played in her life that is most like her. And it really Mm. is when you start to read about her backstory, you know, the relationship with her and Hank and that kind of push pull in all her romantic relationships in her real life. You can, it's interesting now to watch these scenes after I just finished her book and I I just see another level of her now. So it's an interesting read if you ever find the time. And she was a singer too. I think she had like one or two albums. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to say one thing about Hank, though. They were really pushing that domino. <laughs> you know, this episode is like that calling card. We're pushing it. Sucking oh. on the domino. Yeah. Oh, that's, an awful, I, that's an awful visual. It, it was so awful because the germaphobe in me was like, you don't know where that domino's been. You're in jail. Oh, yeah, it's been in prison. Yes. Oh. But I totally agree. It's so disgusting. <laughs> and he's like licking and sucking on a domino. I can't. It's so disgusting. And the episode ends with uh, him uh, reaching out to Josie. He's like, did you get my uh, message? And it's a domino drawn. And we've said this on the show, too. How did did he time this right that she just got it in the mail? (laughs) Yeah, it's your typical, like, weird soap opera thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we got so Cooper and uh, Truman go to the veterinarian, and uh, like I said, this is my, probably the best scene of episode. Very true. It's so yeah. much fun. Definitely. And yeah, I, lo- I, I love the whole is- statement about Cooper. I think you'd be afraid to go to sleep at night. Like no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. For me, I mean, other than the obvious llama bit, I think there's there's two bits in the scene, two quotes. So one is the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily a straight line. Mm. I love, and then. 
for me, I've, I've always just burst out laughing when he says the bird that attacked Laura Palmer is a client of this office. Just, <laughs> that. just something about it is just it's a great line. And that makes me laugh. Yeah. I don't know if this is ever connected. I don't see it in writing, but like there is a bird going by in in the red curtains and yes. stuff like that. And it could be an owl or it could be Waldo. And like the, I think it's Waldo, a bird. Yeah. But still, that's like Lynch didn't know that. But right. it's interesting that it's now connected with the series. Mark Frost knew it. Though. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember if it was Brad Duke's reflection book, but so that whole thing with Llama meeting up with Cooper that actually was done with. Uh, Kyle actually chewing gum, and so the reason the llama stops is it's smelling Kyle's breath, and that's why they have this uh, a second where they kind of looking at each other. Good moment. Yeah. That was it's a great perfect. moment. Yeah, we have Shelly and Bobby. I, I would say about this scene is that you know there's some exposition in here as well. So Bobby tells Shelly that Leo and Jack were running drugs across the border and selling them at school. So that's a way to tell the audience that, right? Mm -hmm. But right. it's a lie because he was, of course, the one that was doing it. As we find out, you know, right. later in, in, in Firewalk with me, of course um and then of course she shows him the bloody shirt and so we've got this it's actually a pivotal scene this and it sets mm -hmm. off a lot of other things in motion as well right yeah, yeah. i mean bobby's able to take that shirt and plant it at jock's yes uh, house or apartment there's one point early in the episode that that really jumped out at me where uh, randy's gun accidentally goes off and then people react to it and the way that cooper reacts i don't know if it, it stuck out to, to anyone else but he kind of jumps and then there's a solid beat, and then he does a full 360-degree spin there. <laughs> yes. And it, I don't know if it's kind of just Kyle being Kyle or if somebody said, hey, Kyle, stop, and then do a full circle spin. He does it. It's awesome. And it's, it is so funny. You're right. It's such thing. a. It seems like such an improv thing. Like it doesn't feel like something that would be. It wasn't. Don't. I don't think it's in the script. And so. Yeah. It does. And I can't imagine the director Tim Hunter said to do it. It does feel like a very improv thing by Kyle. And he has to, uh, you know, practice. Go practice at the, the gun range. Gun range, and you have this great scene, and and you have Hawk who gives his his poem, and a yeah, and you learn in this scene, you learn a history about Cooper, just by talking about being in love with someone, right. and you get which will lead to season two, right? And he gives you that little bit of history that Cooper has. Because he's still kind of a mystery yes. to everybody. There's, he doesn't really have a personal life. His whole life seems to be about FBI. FBI, yeah. Right. I am the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like I love that because I feel like this is one of the first times you see, like, and I don't mean, like, the cracks, but you kind of see a crack in Cooper, you know, because at one point mm -hmm. he tells Audrey he has no secrets. Right. And this is his first kind of, you see, like, a little bit of a darkness in him that you just don't see very often. Very yeah, totally. True. Definitely. I mean, that, that definition he gives of what passes for love is pitiful, really. Like, if you ask somebody if they've ever been in love, take Cooper out of it. And they told you, I knew someone once who helped me understand commitment, responsibilities, and the risks, risks of love, of all things. And then, and then they, of course, taught me the pain of a broken heart. I mean, he could just easily be talking about his FBI time at Quantico while he was learning how to be a federal agent. Like, that's got nothing to do with love, what he just said. Mm. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen more of, of Hawk's girlfriend, Diane Shapiro, or I don't know if maybe ultimately they would have come back to that if there had been a, a season three right after season two. His line there, I mean, that one woman can make you fly like an eagle, another can give you the strength of a lion, but only one in the cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder and the wisdom that you have known, a singular joy. I think it's just a beautiful uh, passage there. It is. It is. Hawk always seems kind of like a loner, like he's doing his own thing. So, yeah, it's funny to think that he has a girlfriend. But it, also, who trained and hired Andy? I mean, he's there, he can't fire a gun, <laughs> and then... Uh, 
they, they say, yeah, well, you know, one hour, three times a week and says, yeah, whatever it takes. Oh. And so what, where was this training to begin with? Right. So the same sheriff's department hires Deputy Hawk and Andy here. But I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, well, it's a cool thing. I think all his training went into drawing. The <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to be an artist. Yeah. Interior Double R Diner, day. James is on the phone with Donna. James, we need to talk. I found some stuff out. Audrey told me some stuff, and Mrs. Palmer saw something. What? James sees Madeline Ferguson waiting at the counter talking to Norma. Come over later so I can tell you. Will you come? Okay. I'll get something to eat, then I'll be over. He hangs up. He looks up and sees Norma and Madeline. Thanks a lot. Practically trembling, James goes up to her. Madeline looks up. She gives him a friendly smile. Hi. Who are you? I saw you yesterday at the funeral. My name's Madeline Ferguson. Laura was my cousin. James Hurley. Laura was a month older than me. Hadn't seen each other much recently. I live in Missoula. I'm a receptionist at an insurance company. Ever been to Missoula? I heard it was nice. From who? <laughs> so you can't smile. Missoula is not so bad, actually. Did you know Laura well? I thought I did. Shelley sets Madeline's order on the counter. Thanks a lot. To James. I'm picking up food for my aunt and uncle. Aunt Sarah can't cook right now, and Uncle Leland's up half the night listening to old music and crying and stuff. But if I was cooking for them, they'd be doing even worse. <laughs> you think I look like Laura? Yes. We used to come visit Twin Peaks when I was a kid. It was great. We pretend we were sisters. I wish I'd known her better. It's so sad. James stares at Madeline. She smiles back, uncomplicated. Well, it was nice to meet you, James Hurley. James involuntarily begins to reach across Death's Void for Laura, then catches himself. Nice to meet you, too. The interesting thing is that Maddie seems to say that she's younger than Laura, which I think in the both Laura Palmer's diary and in the show, she's definitely older. I think she's a college. Also in here, she says she's an insurance agency receptionist, I think. Uh, like, okay, if you're a year younger than Laura, who was in high school, how right. do you pull that off? Yeah. So I thought that was odd. <laughs> I think, of course, the insurance makes me think of season three with, with Dougie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we want to talk about Ben and Audrey. Well, I just only want to talk about that I love every time we see Ben Horn in a tracksuit and on his elliptical bike. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. It's so specific. And he's in the middle of this giant room and he just parks his bike in front of that fireplace and wears that tracksuit. I love it. It's just so Ben Horn. It I is. thought of Tony Soprano in his basement. As soon as yeah. I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is uh, early Sopranos here. That's yeah, that's so and you'll definitely get a good sweat if you're in front of a fireplace. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and what about uh, it's a Duck Hayward and his line that says, who the heck ever heard of diet lasagna? I just, I, I love the line. And uh, I don't know that I've ever seen any memes with diet lasagna, but it feels like somebody needs to, I don't know if Josh, you want to make a meme of diet lasagna and Twin Peaks. I do love this episode because I feel like the pace is so good. Like I feel like in the writing they say, oh, we're already, we're at this episode. We need to start moving the story along. But it's funny to go from 
from the one-armed man to the veterinarian to then we're at Jacques' place and we're getting evidence. We got we've got we found the bloody shirt and it, it, I think it's a great scene. It is. Well, and it was planted by Bobby, right? So again, Bobby plays an instigator in in driving the sheriff's department towards toward Jacques, which is interesting. He'll plant drugs in uh, in James's motorcycle and say, "Okay, lead you this direction." He kind of he seems like he's good at getting the sheriff department to go wherever they yeah, want. Yeah, he's kind of right. leading everybody yeah. there. Yeah. Well, think think of what he does in season three too. He's a critical role to revealing certain things to the sheriff's department in season three as well. So in that in that sense, his nature's never changed in twenty years. Mm, very true. Unseen scene seven: exterior riverbank night. A wooded area by the river. Leo Johnson stands by his red Corvette, nervously smoking a cigarette, looking and waiting. Ben Horn walks out of the woods. Nice touch. A bright red sports car for a secret meeting. You don't like it? Get somebody else. Hank said you were gifted. I believed him. But Leo, your whole approach is misguided. Major career opportunity staring you in the face. And all you can think about is car wax and chicken feed drug transactions. Hey, I'm out 10,000 bucks. Maybe that's peanuts to you, not to me. You were in business with a couple of glue-sniffing squish heads. There are no brothers? I broke up there at. Leo uncovers a tarp revealing the dead body of Bernie Renault, wrapped in plastic. Do we know if the late Bernard gave you up? I told me if he ever did, I'd kill him. Did he? No. He shouldn't have trusted me. But like I said, Bernie wasn't too bright. One last chance, Leo. Don't disappoint me. The mill? Keep it simple. Insurance investigators should read arson. Block letters about six feet high. The deal is we discussed. Ben hands over an envelope of cash. The rest on delivery. Not tomorrow night. Not the night after. The night after that. Three nights... Green light. Clear enough? Leo nods, lights a match off his thumbnail, lights Ben's cigar. Excuse me. I gotta take Bernard. For a swim. Leo hefts Bernard over his shoulder and walks off. Bernard there is wrapped up in plastic, which, if that was shown, I feel like that would be a heavy thinking, oh, it's connected to Laura being wrapped in plastic. He's so casual, Leo just has his dead body with him. (laughs) <laughs> and it's wrapped up, and he—you he, can tell he's just like a heartless killer yeah. because he kills this guy. No, no big right, he deal. To, yeah, he's worried that he betrayed him, and then he's like, "I don't think he did betray me, but I still killed, killed him." Killed him, yeah. and he's got the right convertible, right? And he—and he's like, "Why would you take that? You're being very flashy yes. to meet up." And he's carrying around a dead body, and the weird part is, the dead body would have been in the car, so he, t- he must—he takes a dead body out of the car. Brings it over. Like, hey, look, boss. Look what I can do. Yeah, and like he just got it laying there. It was an odd scene. When he was going to take him for a swim at the end. I guess, you know, yeah. I, I had to think about like the difference in like how Laura's death was portrayed in the pilot, where it's this monumentally like earthquake level, uh, you know, blast to this community, and then this poor dude is murdered, <laughs> and nobody cares at all. He's just in a, wrapped in plastic next to a tree yeah uh, it, it, you know it's just it's terrible for poor bernie yeah it, yeah we, we don't know it was bernie an outsider he must have been a drug dealer from the I, I outside think he was a renault i thought yeah, he, he was, was yeah he was oh. one of the brothers so nobody seems to care about them <laughs> <laughs> i mean you had the bookhouse boys have him tied up the, the i think it's the episode right yes. before where it's like oh yeah they're interrogating him. Um, right. right that's right yeah 
one of my favorite scenes. I don't know how you guys feel, but Jack Nance, his acting in that one little scene with uh, Josie there, I think his acting is so good in this episode. I I had a hard time getting my first or second time watching the whole series. When Josie dies, he, you know, um, he is so upset and... I w- a part of me was like, oh, why, you know, why is he so upset? Like, did he have a crush on her? Blah, blah, blah. But it, to me, I finally got it. I think this scene, for me, it, it clicked. And this is I, where he offers to her, go fishing with her. Right. And, and I kind of I I feel like she gives him what he's not getting from Catherine on an emotional level, not a sexual level at all. I don't think he looks at her in that kind of no. sense. It's like a, a, a friendship, companionship that he's not getting from his own wife, and he finds that in Josie, and I think he really deeply appreciates that. And he's, she's, she, you know, your wife or your significant other. Usually, you make them food, and that gives someone pleasure. And she's mm. making him a sandwich, and he's like, "Oh, add the mayo. Don't tell Catherine." All that, you know. <laughs> and and it, it's comfort. It's comfort food, emotionally comfort food, physically. And I think it clicked for me this time around their relationship and why he was so upset when she died. And I think it's very sweet. And then I think. It makes even more sense with Audrey at the very end of the series. She yeah, has season two. She, in season two, she has her thing with uh, Justice Wheeler, and then afterwards, he's like, "Let's go fishing," right. and he just wants something to go fishing with. Yeah, a buddy, a buddy, and he got it. He needs with, a daughter. He needs a daughter. Right? Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I looked at the was a conversation with with someone that could be a daughter. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that. I mean, I totally agree with you, though. I think it is a daughter or just a companion, Mm. somebody to give him. Because he's so kind-hearted, and Catherine just doesn't give it back. Yeah. Do we have any other thoughts about this episode? So I love the shot at the end, which actually when I looked up, it's... So when Josie answers the phone, the way it's filmed there, and and the director, Tim Hunter, probably really wanted to shoot it that way, where it's at that angle. Mm. It's called a Dutch angle uh, filming style. But if you watch that, just the ending again, it's, it's very different, stark contrast to the, the way the rest of the episode looks. And it's at this very, very sharp angle, the way that Josie's filmed answering that phone. So if, uh, if, if you watch it again, just that end scene, take a look for that. But uh, apparently Tim Hunter's a big fan of using the Dutch angle there. Use that in, in closing the episode. I might be confusing it, but I think he had to get approval for that type of a shot. Like, there were certain shots that only David Lynch could do or the directors. I, I could be wrong with that, but I feel like this yeah, is one of yeah, those. Apparently Mark and David really weren't fans of that or, or apparently they didn't let anybody else uh, do that shot. I mean it conveys um, an emotion of like danger. It works so well because now she opens that letter just at the same time he calls her. She sees the <laughs> domino that he was licking and she's scared. It's a great uh, looking scene too. This whole episode yeah. was fantastically filmed. I mean it's a really great looking episode as well. Totally. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And also, we didn't really touch on this, but this is the first episode where James sees Maddie, right? Right. And I actually really love that scene. It's like he's spooked by her. And then at the mm-hmm. end, when he and Donna, you know, they're with the necklace and they're out in the woods again, and he talks about, like, sometimes I feel like I see her. And it feels like he's saying, because he's just seen Maddie, you know, it's mm-hmm. almost like 
is just so on his mind. I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Ooh. Well, on that point, this is the first time we get to see Shirley act yeah, on, on screen, right? And just yes. think of what she brings yeah. to this show. Josh, it's funny you said that. I think ba- I feel like back in the day, I could be wrong, but there were people out there who said, "Boy, the actress who plays Laura Palmer is amazing," and then like, "But that actress who plays Maddie is not very good." <laughs> <laughs> if you listen to our, we did a, a, a Comic Con in Connecticut, a panel with uh, David Bushman. Yeah. There was some guy in the audience. I don't know if this is on the recording or not, but we did a Q and A, and a guy in the audience said exactly that. Yeah. He said. He was arguing oh, with no. David Bushman saying that wasn't Cheryl Lee. He yeah. goes, her acting was horrible. <laughs> and that and David Bushman wow. says, No, that was Cheryl Lee. That and the guy was actor. just the guy was just like, No, it wasn't. <laughs> First of all, the only person you should argue with David Bushman is Scott Ryan. Oh That's yeah, right. The only person. Oh, Other than that, don't even try. Yeah, I thought Cheryl did a fantastic job. But I, I guess we, we see her act very briefly in an episode before this as Laura, right? Just in that one uh, flashback where she breaks the necklace with James. Right. Yeah, and, and this is really where we see her come out as, as Maddie, though. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thought she was fantastic. And I always think she did a great job. She's a little more subtle. She's a little bit more, almost comes off, I don't know if she comes off shy, but she's different from Laura. Right. Yeah. She does a Definitely. great job changing yeah. it up. And I think a lot of it's how she smiles when she talks. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. think of an actress that young to be able to infuse something that subtle into their acting as a nuance. It's just incredible. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. The last thing, uh, just on the episode here, if you, if you can't tell already, I, I love a lot of quotes. And I think for me, one of the biggest quotes from this episode is when Cooper says, when two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention I just, I love that, and I think that's it's the best. one of the most iconic lines from Twin Peaks. It is so good, and actually, that was originally in uh, the pilot, the extended European version. He wakes up and he gives that quote, and so I guess that quote was then taken and brought into this episode. It's a great quote. Yeah, of course, it's not as good as Pete Martell's quote of "cut some wood, made some lumber." <laughs> <laughs> Two by fours, four by fours. Yeah. Now that we've seen season three, can we look back and does it feel any different? My eyes are on Sarah Palmer so much now Hmm. because of season three. You know, like I'm reading layers into everything she does. And it's it's interesting to watch because I really, you know, that idea of Jow Day and all everything. Yeah. Well, whatever theory everybody has, there's something wrong with her and there's possibly evil inside her. And it's it's interesting to watch it through that lens to rewatch season one and season two. There wasn't a ton in this episode, but even just the fact that her visions and all of that, like there's so many layers you could read into things. Yeah. And also we learn. um, Oh, God. I think during the bathroom scene, we also learned that. Laura had dreams and her mom had dreams. Right. Right. So they both had this weird thing. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, Laura had these dreams because we find out what's happening to her. But then we also find out later on that Sarah was being drugged. And those could have come off as some sort of dream or vision or she was so well, out of it. She see a white horse right before she passes out. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's like how they mentioned the dream things, how both of them. So it was... In a later episode, I don't know if this is season two, Maddie will say that she has dreams and Sarah will be like, oh, you know, like, you were dreaming of Laura. And and I I don't know if this is probably in the scripts that supposedly her her sister, Beth, also had dreams. Oh, gee. Well, I think that concept of 
dreamers who are dreaming inside of a fictional narrative is just hmm. obviously something very, very lynchy. And I just got done writing a piece for Paul Atreides from Dune for uh-huh. the, the next Blue Rose magazine. And of course, in there, he outright says, you know, I, I've awakened from the dream, father. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you start to think about all these characters having their own independent dreams and, and of course, weigh that against the the question who is the dreamer you know that absolutely reframes how you watch all of twin peaks from the very beginning to the end again definitely well thank you guys so much for 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 talking about episode four it's great to have and robin this is a, you know the first time we've we've gotten to have you on this show it's great to have another fan of twin peaks talk about the show thank you so much yeah thanks for having me like i said i'm I'm a fan of you guys. I enjoy your rapport. There are a lot of Twin Peaks podcasts, and when I was, you know, leading up to season three, I started listening to all of them. But you're you're hands down my favorite. Oh, oh thank you, thank you. And, and Robin, I'd love to hear about your background. Like you're actually you actually have a play or that you're working on right now. Can you share a little bit about that? Oh yeah, thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a actor, comedian, writer, and a play that I <laughs> a comedy show I started six seven years ago in LA that ran for three years there then ran three years in Chicago and we are opening off Broadway this summer it is called hashtag date me an okay cupid experiment and it is exactly like what it sounds it's based on a true experiment I did on the dating website okay cupid so basically what it is is I when I first moved to LA from Chicago I didn't know a lot of people and my friend Lori called me up and she had created an OkCupid online dating profile and she wanted me to look at it and see if she wrote anything weird. And at that time I was like offended because this is even pre-Tinder. I was like, uh, I don't online date, but <laughs> I'll look at your profile. But you have to have a profile to look at other people's profiles. So I took five minutes and I made this crazy cat lady <laughs> and I called her Tracy Loves Cats and I just answered all the profile questions like in all caps like, I love kitties! <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, on a typical Friday night, I'm eating chocolate and playing with my kitties! <laughs> so stupid, right? Literally did it for five minutes, forgot, and then a couple days later, got on the app and there were hundreds of messages from guys to Tracy Loves Cats, super into her, like talking all meows and doing, it was so ridiculous. <laughs> and my friends and I were just dying laughing. And then I thought up, hold on, uh, this crazy cat lady is more popular online than I am in real life. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of sparked an experiment that I did with my friend Bob Ladwig, we basically, we called it undateable at the time, the show's title has changed, but we created the most undateable personalities we could think of and posted them all across the country and tracked interactions with people. The show is like, I've made 38 characters. The show is like our undateable characters and then verbatim dialogue of the real people we interacted with. So if that gives any kind of explanation, but because you can't write this stuff, it was so funny. And I went down this whole journey. It's also heartfelt because it's all these people looking for love and it's, it's really evolved into an actual play. It's a full on narrative, but, um, I'll give you an example of one of the other characters. Cause I was like, nobody wants a crazy cat lady. That's that stereotype. Mm, yeah. So thought, okay. So from the male perspective, what would that be? So then 
the first male character we created is called Marry Me Now Stat. And he's like a guy who literally is like, I just can't wait to get married. I've already got the ring. I just need the finger. Uh, that kind of thing. So That's I don't great. know if that explains it. But it's a comedy show. It's scripted. There's improv. There's music. It's kind of unlike anything you've ever seen. It's at the West Side Theater. It's going to be off-Broadway in New York. And if you want info, you can go to datemeshow.com or at datemeshow. Uh, that's the social media handle. But tickets are at datemeshow.com. And thanks for letting me talk about it. Yeah. Sounds and, great. And what, what are the dates? Like, when will it, when can people go? Well, you can come. We preview June 20th is our first preview, but previews we, will change things. I believe Aaron's coming June 20th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was like, that's great. Um, but also, I forgot to tell one of the greatest things. So it's a super technological show, and we've created an app with the show. So, like, it's an immersive kind of event experience. So you'll get to the show and you kind of log on to our hashtag date me app. You create your own profile for the night. It's going to be so, so cool. So so there's cool. a lot of interactive technology in the New York version that we never got to have before. So we'll be testing a lot of things out. So if you come early, like June 20th, that first week, you'll see us in the preview process and then we'll start tightening it, tightening it. And we officially open July 8th. Wow, awesome. that's so awesome! Cool. And really, you, you created this, you co-wrote it, you did, uh, you co-did the lyrics for this, and uh, yeah. and it, it's loosely based on your story, right? Or it's, it's there's a it's Robin in a character. It's tightly based on my story. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much me. The lead character is called is named Robin Lynn Norris, and it is the whole journey of what I went through at that time and I don't want to give anything away but it's a hilarious show but it's also I was going through some stuff at that time so it actually kind of has a narrative through it and you start to realize why would this person spend so much time interacting with all these strangers they don't know on the internet uh, so there's there's a heartfelt narrative to it as well it's highly based on me you know only a couple things are fictionalized for the storytelling purposes but Everything about the experiment is verbatim and truthful. So awesome, so cool. And so people can learn more about this at datemeshow.com. Yes. And Aaron, what have you been up to? You seem like you're always traveling. You're always going places, meeting uh, other Twin Peaks. You're fans. everywhere. You're everywhere. What have you been up to? Yeah, I just I, I have fun with it all. I mean, yeah. I, I I I end up traveling a lot for my work, and then I try to. I mean, I, I travel to Indonesia now, as like my main client is based. And then while I was over there, I have a lot of friends I met last year in Australia, uh, actually all Twin Peaks fans, and made it a point to use some, some airline miles after Indonesia to fly over to Australia, uh, visit a, a number of really good friends there. Uh, Millie Henley, who makes the uh, the amazing dolls you see online, it's really creative stuff. Wow. Uh, Andy Hazel, uh, just a, a lot of good people. And then over to New Zealand, actually, after that, uh, Angela Cumming, who had on some of the New Zealand Twin Peaks panels last year, it said if I'd ever uh, had an opportunity to make it to New Zealand, she'd kind of come around a bit. So I said, yeah, you know, this is when I could come. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. I mean, New Zealand is incredibly beautiful. We wow. had a, a sea lion kind of just pop out of the water and walk towards us. Uh, but I just, I, I love meeting, I mean, Twin Peaks fans, the whole community, it's just some of the most warm and, and wonderful people. I mean, and, I, and I've, been fortunate enough to, to meet a lot of people when I go traveling. I mean, I met Robin at Festival Disruption in LA this past year, and 
it just it's such a great community and and it just it makes me really happy to see people come together and have fun just trying to bring people together definitely yeah they were there. it's yeah. so true and Josh, what are you up to? You've, you're busy with your book, and you've, of course, got the Red Room podcast. I, I had to put down the keyboard and walk away from writing about Twin Peaks for a while. So this is actually com- coming out of retirement a little bit. But I actually started writing a screenplay about the life of Joseph Campbell and Jiddu Krishnamurti, um, which is completely different from, from you know writing about Twin Peaks. So that's wow. been taking up all of my free time. Uh, but what I'm looking forward to coming up is the meetup happening in Columbus in July, where we're all going to meet Ray Wise and Cheryl Lee and watch Firewalk with me a hundred times together and <laughs> have some great laughs. And uh, if, you, if you still want to come, that's a super easy flight. There are still tickets available. Mike McGrainer is presenting that. You guys have had him on the show as well, I think. Uh, just a wonderful guy. And then, of course, the Twin Peaks UK Festival coming up in October, which I am absolutely going this year. It's the 10th anniversary. It's going to be phenomenal. I think yeah. where you're going. Um, yep. And I really yep. hope to see all of you there. It's it's going to be great. I can't wait. The community of Twin Peaks is the greatest thing about Twin Peaks. Hands down. Uh, yeah, wonderful yeah. people. Like like Aaron, who's now a global Twin Peaks goodwill ambassador. I'm going to give you that title. <laughs> That's awesome. But, yeah, I appreciate it, Josh, and definitely looking forward to, to meeting you. I guess I'll see you in Ohio for Firewalk with me and in the UK. So definitely looking yes, forward sir. to meeting you in person. And I'll be in Ohio as well. And uh, I plan on seeing at least three of the four showings of Firewalk with me. That's so. crazy. You'll be there. <laughs> wow. But I mean, it so really, awesome. it really is about the community. It's so right. true. I think you know when Brian and I go to all these different events, you know, you want to go to these events because it's exciting to be there. But then you realize, wow, it's really the, the people. It's the it's our friends that we get right. to hang out with and catch up with. It, it, there's nothing quite like it. No. Well, thank you so much. And, and one more time, we're starting with Aaron, then Robin, then Josh. Uh, Aaron, how can people you know follow you? And- Your globe-trotting ways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so, so really the easiest way now, and I'm most active on Twitter, that's at iMoveCar. Uh, and and I, I had fun with that name. I mean, of course, it's security, part 16. I was a Polish accountant. I am an accountant in real life. <laughs> We're kind of came logically there, and I just I love that line, that iMoveCar. Uh, so, yeah, I, follow me at iMoveCar on Twitter. Nice. And Robin? Uh uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter, it's Robin L. Norris. It's Robin with a Y, L as in Lynn, and Norris like Chuck Norris. And Instagram, it's Robin Lynn Norris, all spelled out. Robin with a Y, L-Y-N-N-E, Norris. Cool. Nice. And Josh? So I'm uh, at Joshua Minton on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that stuff. And then uh, jbmintonwriter.com is, is where my web presence is. So I uh, appreciate you guys letting us give that out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. And thank you to the Unseen Players. And you can follow us at Twin Peaks Unwrap. You can send us an email at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com. Like us in the good old Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. And subscribe to us on YouTube at Twin Peaks Unwrapped. We're also on iTunes. A nice five-star review would be awesome. Google Play, Spotify, and we'll see you guys in two weeks. Jade. I just picked the most beautiful flowers. Chad, what's wrong? Hello, sister. Emerald. Hello, beautiful. Montana. My God, what are you doing here? Have a seat, Jade. 
Montana, pour Jade a drink. I think she's gonna need it. Emerald, please, don't do this. Chad, where's Daddy? What's this all about? Relax, baby. Everything's cool. I think it's time we all had a nice talk. Tune in tomorrow for Invitation to Love. Are you having a hard time finding a good book to read about Twin Peaks? Did you finish binge-watching Twin Peaks in quarantine, and now you're looking for more? If so, we have the book for you. Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. Based off the popular show from the 1990s, read about the making of each episode from over 100 cast and crew members. This book covers Season 1, Season 2, Firewalk With Me, and Season 3. But wait, there's more! This book has commentary from the community and the host from the wildly popular podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Order now! Supplies are very limited. Go to bluerosemag.com today.